thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on November 3rd, 2021 with Dr. Ali Khan. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, a, a familiar face uh, rejoining us here on this webinar series, Dr. Khan. Uh, Dr. Khan has become a friend. He and I were just even uh, talking about an op-ed that he and I were, were planning on writing before the pandemic. Uh, and, and the op-ed, remind me, uh, was about COVID and supply chain disruptions or the Chinese supply chain. And oh my God, are we living through Absolutely. it today? Uh, we should have written it. Uh, we did write it. We didn't publish it. <laughs> in any case, uh, I am thrilled to have Dr. Khan with me again. Uh, he is actually, in many ways, the reason this webinar series exists. Uh, and so I thought it appropriate to effectively wrap up the webinar series, having him back on. Um, it started really in April of 2020, where I decided to just ask Dr. Khan to talk to me about what was happening during the early stages. As many of you know, he wrote this book, The Next Pandemic. I had used this book uh, as a text in my class at Harvard uh, on humanity and its challenges. Uh, and we had discussed the risk of a pandemic really going back to 2016, 17, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, I had gotten to know Dr. Khan and had a lot of respect for his way of thinking, his experience and his level-headed sort of clarity uh, on complex topics. So again, we're, we're gonna turn to my conversation with him, uh, but before we do a little bit of a replay of what I hosted of the folks I hosted this summer. Um, we had Mike McCarthy, a fellow Omaha uh, resident, uh, chairman and founder of the McCarthy Group, but also chairman of Bridges Trust, uh, a true, uh, really successful business person and just a great human being, uh, a friend. Um, before that, I had Charlene Willis, who was a senior executive at Bechtel, a uh, construction company. And she talked about a cancer diagnosis, her personal journey, and then some of what it was like to be an African-American woman in a corporate boardroom in the C-suite. Um, before that, I had Kevin Zinger, an entrepreneur who effectively is trying to recreate manufacturing uh, by introducing 3D printing and artificial intelligence um, and, and thinking about the carbon footprint, not just that comes out of the exhaust of a car, but the carbon footprint starting in the manufacturing straight through. And Kevin was really a, a, a treat to talk with. Uh, Diane Hessen, uh, Boston Globe columnist uh, joined me in June. Uh, she'd published a new book called Our Common Ground, and I just found it so refreshing. Uh, there's so many areas of polarization and difference, et cetera. And Diane and I talked about how there's actually more areas of commonality and there's positivity out there. We just need to look for it. Uh, we talked about the need for a diversified media diet, et cetera. Uh, probably one of the more disturbing um, webinar, you know, one of the disturbing webinar conversations I've hosted uh, over the course of the past 18 months uh, was with Hakeem and his wife, Rashan, uh, about the genocide that's taking place in Western China or East Turkestan or Xinjiang, uh, depending upon your perspective. Uh, and the book that just came out that Hakeem had written uh, called Menace, uh, really quite shocking data revealed with firsthand accounts and very disturbing developments. Um, Bjorn Lomborg uh, joined me to talk about his book, False Alarm. Uh, not a climate denier, but someone who thinks we should think differently about what we do about climate change. 
you know, investing in adaptation, thinking about geoengineering and other dynamics to help combat the impact rather than change our lifestyles, depress our economies, et cetera. Uh, and so very logical, thoughtful, independent thinker. Uh, before that, Grant Williams, a friend who uh, is a financial market commentator, we sort of took the temperature of financial markets, the Fed, et cetera. Um, before that, I had Chad Foster. Chad, uh, unusually, um, experienced a, a, a quite difficult uh, development in his personal health. He went blind at the age of 20. And so he wasn't born blind. Uh, he was born with vision and then had to learn to adapt and how that change of perspective, literally changing his perspective, um, influenced how he navigates life, uncertainty, and his career was, was the topic of that conversation. And then I began... Um, with Mike Rogers, uh, who was the former chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And, and Mike and I talked about a lot of things. He's a former congressman, um, but he talked a lot about uh, China, Huawei, um, what was happening with 5G and how there's really a full all out tech war. Mike was the person who effectively got the UK, uh, Canada, Australia and New Zealand on board with the United States to not use Huawei equipment. Um, and of course, we started the series uh, April 15th of last year to promote my book. It's now out there. So I will uh, leave that there. And uh, so Dr. Khan, thank you for joining me again. Oh, Vikram, thank you. I've really been looking forward to this, given yeah. an update on what's going on in the world of COVID. Yep. So uh, I don't think you know this. I think we talked about it a little bit, but you're the reason this started. I was actually, and I want to start with this as a topic, at the very early stages of the pandemic, they, a lot of us started feeling isolated. There was a mental health impact, et cetera. And I decided to reach out to you. And a couple of friends said, well, if you're going to be talking to Dr. Khan, can I eavesdrop? <laughs> and I said, well, that seems rude, but let me ask him if we can do it as a webinar. And we did. And, and I've had 45 conversations. It's been a lovely series since. So uh, in many ways, you are responsible for this whole <laughs> development, if you will. But let's just begin with where are we in this pandemic are we through it are we exiting it just give us a give us some hope <laughs> oh glad to hope hope comes in a vial these days labeled vaccine uh we've come a long way uh fortunately um the science has advanced tremendously since we first spoken we now have three licensed vaccines in the united states we're likely to have a fourth one based on a different technology called novavax um, and there's already uh really good evidence that we may and we have better new drugs we can use that we didn't have when we had this conversation you know we know steroids work really well late in illness we know that these manufactured antibody products, immune products, are really very effective in preventing uh, hospitalization and severe illness. And we're about to get a pill too that could be used to help treat patients. So we are we mark we've come a long way in terms of our options to prevent and treat disease uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So that's all great news. I think the only hesitation any of us have is that we're not using all the tools available to us to try to get this disease continued under control. So we went through, you know, this large surge in the winter, then we had a new variant, you know, that came through through the summer. And even that, you know, we've, we've sort of crested it, but we've not come down. And I think over the last week, we've even had an increase in, uh, in cases. So there's still spotty progress across the United States. But overall, I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll get this done. Yeah. Uh, 
there's variation around the world too in how countries are doing it. And for better or worse, we're an interconnected world uh, and there come with that some risks that come. So even if we sort of get further along in our containment control, I'm reading headlines of what's happening in Russia. I'm reading headlines of what's happening elsewhere in the world where hospitalizations and death rates are going through the roof. Uh, do we continue to have to have our guard up against stuff coming in? Does that change sort of border control dynamics? How do you think about that? So I think about that in terms of new variants. So everybody who's listening to you right now, and I love this format, intimate format to have a conversation. Everybody who's listening to you now knows that every year they get a new flu vaccine. We get a new flu vaccine because the flu virus changes a little bit and the one you had last year isn't good anymore. Um, and so unless we really get control of this globally, there will continue to be these new variants like, like the Delta variant. And currently we're worried about things called a Delta plus variant, a mu variant, a Lambda variant. There'll continue to be a risk of variants coming through for which our, for which our vaccine is not completely tweaked and our immune system isn't completely tweaked. That would cause a risk of having another surge of cases. So this is not a, this is a global problem. We have to address it locally with how we put prevention in place in our communities, uh, but also address it globally. So it's a global problem, I guess, right? Because we'll, and we have open borders. We will always have open borders, uh, immigration, uh, travel, commerce, and that's gonna bring, bring continued risk, not just to this virus, but I, I hope this is a lesson for the future to say, how do we prevent this from happening again, right? That's my passion. That was the reason I wrote the book, right? You know, we, we have the tools for this one, but we don't want to go through this again. And, you know, your series has made the point, right? The, it's horrific. The 750,000 deaths is hard. I can't imagine it. 750,000 deaths in two years, right? Third leading cause of death in America. But the political, the social, the economic, the emotional, I mean, that complete societal disruption that we've had from this disease. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, as, as you know, and a lot of the listeners here will know also, I, I try to connect the dots holistically and looking across each individual silo uh, because there are implications, ramifications, and, and we all operate in, in effectively a system where there's feedback loops, right? We do one thing here, you get a feedback there, et cetera. And so we, we get those things. I want to stick on this topic of we live in a global world. And I think this is a topic we even touched on very briefly in our prior conversation. Uh, multilateral organizations, such as the World Health Organization. I think right when we were last talking, President Trump at the time was talking about defunding the World Health Organization. Since then, I think there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not these multilateral organizations are truly well-motivated, whether they've been hijacked by other great powers, i.e. China. We saw some of that with the IMF and World Bank, and there's thoughts that maybe some of that was going on even with the World Health Organization. Help us make sense of how we can think about public health in a global sense and work together with others, yet also make sure that we're actually thinking you know, directly without the, the risk of great power rivalry sort of infiltrating multilateral groups. A great point. And you're, you're spot on. Last conversation, uh, President Trump was thinking about defunding WHO, and he did effectively defund them uh, by executive order, but that was reversed, fortunately. And you're also spot on that China, that the 
um, WHO hasn't been accused about being too close to China in two specific cases. One is they were slow to call this a, a event of public health interest. So, um, you know, and it's like, really, if this isn't a bad one, what is? Um, and then the whole continued concerns about um, uh, full accountability of what happened within the Wuhan laboratories, right? But the origins, the origins logic. The origins, yeah. right? the yeah. or, the origin uh, of this virus. And I think WHO is clear that it's a member agency. It's a, it's a, it's a, and all of the UN organization, like the member agencies, they need to take account the interests of all of their members. And uh, Tedros, uh, um, uh, the director general had to thread a fine needle because, you know, Today he's talking about COVID, but tomorrow he needs to talk to China about smoking and environmental health and heart disease. Do you know what I mean? And so you have to be careful. How do you thread that needle to uh, not alienate individuals, countries, but hold them accountable from a public health standpoint? And I don't think that's, I don't put that completely on WHO, I put that on the global uh, community uh, and the leadership of the global communities as they set up these treaties uh, and relationships and organizations to say, where is that accountability that if you have data on a pathogen, you will share it. If you have a sample, you will share it, right? We have the international health regulations. I mean, I think that's where you need to go back and say, is there a better way to do this than we have been doing and force pol politicians to look at these issues and not just public health people. Uh, and that is what we need to have, what we need to happen. So let the scientists sort of do what the scientists do, uh, but force the UN and other, you know, the UN itself to say, we can't just, the you know, policy is a function of politics and science. Right, always, that's how you develop policy. And I think the UN has been uh, um, too hands off on, well, this is sort of technical stuff, let the technical people do it. We know that is not the right approach. Uh, pandemics are a, are a political failure. They're not a public health failure. And I know that sounds kind of bold, but I really do believe that political failures, not public health failures. Interesting. So as you heard, one of my prior conversations was with uh, a couple of Uyghur dissidents um, and they very clearly described how they believed multilateral organizations like the United Nations are broken, that they've been hijacked. You know, will the world ever call what's happening in Western China a genocide if, in fact, the UN Human Rights Council has as one of its sitting members, China? It's sort of, okay, and then the Belt and Road Initiative, they got financial interests and in some of these other members that are also on this Council, will they call it? And so I, I can imagine there's at least worries that similar dynamics have infected public health. Um, oh, and you can take, I mean, the, the perfect public health example is you can't get WHO to say the word Taiwan, right? Yep. Or Taiwan is a country or Taiwan should have its own membership rights. And, and uh, there's these great memes out there of... Um, uh, a senior WHO person where a reporter mentions Taiwan and he disconnects the Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> it's craziness. I agree. But, it's but that, fun. but I don't put, I, I guess, I guess it's where do you put the blame? Is it the blame on WHO or is it the blame on the UN that is unable to handle this issue from a political standpoint, right? They're, they just are sort of parroting what's happening at the national, at the international level. So that's where the solutions need to come. It's not, it's not for WHO to announce that Taiwan is or is not a country. That's, do you know what I mean? Or, right, that's at the UN level, the dysfunction at the global governance level that needs attention.
Sure, sure. So let's let's talk about a question that some folks have already emailed me about um, and you touched on. Uh, and it's obviously dancing on the global dynamics, but it's also something that was at the forefront of some of the conflict around the World Health Organization, which is the origin of this virus. Mm -hmm. What do we know? What do we know? What can we say with certainty or with great prob high probability? I know there's nothing certain, but you know, is this something that could have been lab leaked? Was it in possibly intentional? Was it a possible bioweapon, et cetera? There's a whole bunch of questions around that. I'll just leave it open for you to answer how you want. Fair enough. And so I think the best place to start is with the open source uh, CIA report, uh, intelligence community report that came out recently uh, that the president had originally asked for to say, what do you think? Uh, so I guess if I could say one sentence, it's you can never prove a negative, right? Um, so that's, yes, it could absolutely have been a lab leak. I don't think anybody thinks, it, nobody believes it. So they were not weaponizing agents in that lab. Nobody thinks it's deliberate. Uh, at best, it would be somebody was working on experiments with a virus that they should not have been doing. And then for various reasons, uh, you know, lab misadventure, it made it out into the community and infected other people. So that would be this most likely scenario of those scenarios. Uh, at this point, what the data says, um, and that was driven by the fact that the closest neighbor to the virus, so these are bat viruses, the closest neighbor to that virus was in Wuhan lab when these theories sort of came out. Now we have closer neighbors to SARS that are out from the wild, right? So it, so that sort of goes, well, then, okay, then why, we don't need this lab theory anymore to try to explain this because we have even better viruses out from the wild that are much closer to the virus that infects us. So the yep. most likely scenario is that this was well without a doubt it started in the wild it infected a person um, and then it spread from from person to person spread just like the last SARS pandemic just like all of the Ebola outbreaks we see in West Africa bats human yep. outbreak so it looks like a typical spillover infection into humans and um, and then spread now unfortunately there's no way you know to refute a the lab theory right there's no there's no proof so that will always be out there for those who are trying to try to deflect accountability for what happened in the U.S. by saying, well, it's a China virus, so it's China's fault. Uh, and I'd say, even if you want to blame China for this, the response in the U.S. was not China's fault. That was our, that was, uh, that, that's on us. Yeah, yeah. So why the hesitancy? Why did this create such a spat with Australia when they said we need to understand? We want to figure out where this came from. This is really important so we can prevent it from happening again. We want to get to the origins of where this start. And the Chinese became very defensive. Is there a, a scientific reason you would? Uh, there's not really a scientific reason you should be defensive. You should be open about it all, right? Correct. And that doesn't help either. <laughs> that uh, you know, uh, just be more open about it. Um, so it caught, so there's a lot of political underpinnings to this is a lab created virus. And as far as the Chinese have said, you know, we've been open about this. This is not a lab, you know, here's the data that we're sharing. This is not a virus that was created in our laboratories. We weren't doing these experiments in our laboratories. And the, the person who would know best is the scientist who's responsible for SARS coronavirus research. And she's saying, no, this wasn't me. It's not my virus. You know, we're not the ones who did this. And so I think at some point they just get annoyed uh, as a okay. nation that, you know, you're just trying to blame us for this, you know, uh, uh, and 
what we should blame them for uh, legitimately is what took you so long to find this in your community? You know you have had other outbreaks like this. Why have you never ever shared the virus, the virus samples with the global community? They did share eventually the sequences. But you know, this is one of those things. The moment they knew it, they should have they should have reported it to WHO. They, when they reported to WHO, they already knew it was spread from person to person. They already knew it infected healthcare workers. They denied that, right? And so all of that, they absolutely, people should ask the Chinese, those difficult Chinese, the government, those difficult questions is why did your, your initial failed response, despite what you knew, why did you not tell us what was going on? And we would have all, the global community would have gotten what, another three weeks to be better prepared? That's a big difference. Sure. Sure. And, and, and I, and I have some questions and I'm, I suspect that the person who asked it will, will text and ask me more clarifying details, but uh, there were also, there was significant data that the Chinese were hoovering up PPE and other types of equipment uh, to sort of protect themselves at the expense of the global community. Uh, indicate they knew something, right? I mean, you're stopping domestic flights, but you're letting the flight go to Milan, you're, you know, et cetera. Um, that there might have been more knowledge than the world was led to believe. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. They, they, by the end of everything we know, by the end of December, when they were first reporting these cases, they already knew that their healthcare workers were getting infected. They already knew it was spread from person to person, and they already knew it was not the Wuhan market exclusively because they had cases that were completely unassociated with the Wuhan market. Right. But what was the original story? Right. The original story was cluster of infections, Wuhan market, you know, infection amongst them, between them is how this happened. And we've got it all covered. You know, we found everybody in the Wuhan market. It's all isolated, encapsulated. You are good to go. And uh, that was not true. (laughs) Completely not true. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting. And this is probably outside the domain of, of, of public health. But a lot of folks I've talked to have concluded that how it started, why it started, whatever, we can debate that till we're blue in the face. But the fact is the Chinese were not forthcoming about it once they figured out it had started. And then they possibly even used it to their advantage, relatively speaking in the global community by allowing it to do things because of their you know, misdirection, possible misinformation flow. That's a debate. That's a debate. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't a, go, I wouldn't go to the that sure. they deliberately let it once they knew about it they deliberately let it go worldwide but i would i will you i completely agree and as you saw that it was poorly managed and this yeah. is the part that this is not a who solution right to say well this is a global united nations government to government conversations at the highest level to say we can't let this happen again and i have you know i i think i've chatted with you you know given your Think for yourself thing. I have said that unless you have certain safeguards, all international travel has an international tax on it. And countries that don't prove that they're able to do A, B, and C, do not share samples, etc., you can't fly out of the country without an international tax. That goes to a preparedness fund. I'm, you know, not, but you know. Yeah whatever. And then the only way you get that tax off is if you commit to these things. So I think there's fiscal mechanisms that we're not even willing to think about. You know, people go, well, what is the, how do you punish countries? Well, you can't really punish a country, but that sounds like a good one. We're going to tax every ticket for everybody who travels out of 
China and other countries, unless we have concrete evidence, you've done this around preparedness and you will share information. And do you know what I mean? Sure. Nobody sure. will broach that topic, but I think there are ways if we're trying to be creative. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that, that's good stuff. Um, let's change gears a little bit because uh, there's too many questions. I literally can't keep up with them here. A uh, lot of questions about vaccines. Okay. About vaccines. So what's the long-term impact? Do we know? Did we rush this process to the point where we don't fully understand what impact this may have on us five, seven, 10 years from now? You know, am I going to lose my hair because of it? I'm probably going to lose my hair because of age, but that's a different problem. Um, so uh, this is good. So um, the technology that made the mRNA vaccines is 30 years old. So we've been working on mRNA vaccines for over 30 years. Most of that work in the last 15 years, mainly around cancer, cancer vaccines. So the technology itself is not new, is not rushed. What was what what is new is the fact, uh, or maybe it's not new, which is if you put billions of dollars towards a problem, uh, you get solutions faster, right? So when you pre-buy all your vaccine, regardless of whether you're going to know it works or not, well, then the company then has all of the resources they need to say, I need to do phase one, two, and three studies immediately. I can do these studies at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. So money is what allowed us to get those vaccines so fast, not rushed science. So that's, so that's good news. Um, we know they're very safe. We know they're very effective uh, at this point. We know what the risks, small risks are from the live adenoviruses like Johnson & Johnson in the US, increased risk amongst women over 40, 40 to 50 years of age for these uh, thrombosis, blood clot blood clotting effects. We know there's a small risk for young males, 16 to 29, for their second dose of the mRNA vaccines for getting some myocarditis. We know there's a small risk with these vaccines for a disease that occurs with all vaccines, Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's a neurologic syndrome. So that's all well-defined. Everything we know about vaccines is that the side effects you see will be usually within the first six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, three months. But once you're done, you're done. It's not like seven years later, you go, whoa, I gave this vaccine. I have a new side effect. That's just not how the vaccine, that's not how vaccine science works, right? We, it's, this isn't the first vaccine. We have lots of other vaccines. We know the effects you see are usually uh, early part of post-vaccination. Uh, and while the vaccine is new, the, the strategy is, for this vaccine is the same strategy for every other vaccine, which is it teaches your immune system what to do. Uh, and you can teach your immune system what to do by various ways. You can take a virus, kill it and put it into somebody. You know, you can take a live virus and put a little piece of the specific thing you want to teach the body to do. Or you can use this mRNA technology, which bypasses all that and says, you know what, why don't you make your own uh, piece of the virus and teach your own immune system? We're not going to, you know what I mean? So, so it's, it's, that, that's all known. So there's nothing new in that process. We're just getting better at it. Gotcha. So one of the things that uh, this, the same person asked, which was, okay, the long-term effects of the virus uh, you've answered sort of, we sort of have a decent sense of what about the long, sorry, of, of the vaccine. What about the long-term? No. So what, what about the long-term impact long of the virus? Long COVID. Long COVID. Now that, that one is a problem, which is why I tell people, I, I don't just care about deaths. I do care about cases because depending on the data you're looking at, 10 to 15% of people potentially a year or more out will have some sort of symptoms, including the mo most 
a specific one is fatigue that's unexplained oh. in brain fog, right? Uh, so this sort of chronic fatiguing like illness. So th that is a concern uh, long-term. Hopefully that will get better. We do know that if you have long COVID and you're vaccinated, that may actually get you better too. So my recommendation to anybody who has long COVID is they get uh, vaccinated. But that one is just right now, w, uh, the US has got a brand new cohort. So they got a brand new study to enlist, uh, enroll everybody with long COVID and give us better data on what's going on. But another reason why we don't want to get infected even. Yep, yep, got it. And then of course, children. Thoughts on the vaccine for children. Uh, uh, so the vaccine for children. So I love and hate the vaccine for children. I hate the vaccine for children because the only reason we need a vaccine for children is because adults have been irresponsible <laughs> and have allowed disease to go in the community, right? If we had low disease transmission in the community, there'd be no reason to vaccinate kids. That's just the honest truth. Um, I love the vaccine for kids because adults have not been responsible and we now they now have the opportunity to protect themselves or their parents have the opportunity to protect themselves. Pfizer's already been approved for 12 and above. Now it's uh, just got approval last night for five to 11, and that'll be one third of the dose. It's about 91% effective in preventing um, a disease. So it looks like it's very effective. Um, the initial profile, but again, it's only 4,500 says it's quite safe in these kids. Uh, the good thing is the main concern we have with these, the, the Pfizer vaccine is myocarditis, and that's usually not in this age group. It's, it's in the older age group, as I said, 16 to 29. So not the five to 11 year old. Uh, age group. So it should be a good vaccine. And I believe about a third of parents are ready to get their kids vaccinated. Um, this is, I'm not sure if you talked about it during your series, right? Uh, uh, kids, kids are less, less, less likely to get infected, although they are more likely to die than with flu. So it's more serious than a flu-like illness uh, for them. But this, this is significant social, emotional, educational disruption for our kids, right? Uh, when a school shuts down two weeks, bye-bye, you know, it's like, whoa. And, you know, Older kids do well with remote learning, but I don't care what anybody tells you. Young kids do not do well with remote learning. They just don't. That's right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, relating to this is a is a question that's maybe technical that was sent to me, but worth asking nonetheless, which is, uh, Dr. Khan, the vaccines don't prevent people from getting the virus. Uh, the vaccines don't prevent people from transmitting the virus. Uh, they do prevent the people from. They do prevent people who take the vaccine from getting, you know, gravely ill or hospitalized. And so there is a value in having it from a community perspective because you're not clogging up the hospital systems. You're not putting death on the world. You know, there's there's huge value. Let's not debate that. But um, does vac forcing vaccination uh, make sense? on large groups of people, given it doesn't prevent transmission and it doesn't prevent you from getting it? So um, it does It does prevent you from getting it and it does prevent transmission, not as well as it prevents severe illness and death. Gotcha. Right? So, so, so lower viral you're less load. likely to get infected and you're less likely to have asymptomatic and mild disease. However, that, that effect isn't as good as the effect of you're not going to die. <laughs> Right. 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 Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's just sort of what it, it's same thing with flu vaccine, right? It's not, you're not going to die, but it's not going to prevent you from getting mildly ill. Okay. So yes, there is a role from a community standpoint for these vaccines. The other thing I'm going to bring, I'm going to link this to the last conversation, which is you don't want people sick. 
right? Because you don't want them to get long, long COVID. And then by getting everybody vaccinated, you're protecting those who vaccine does not fully protect. If you have immune conditions, if you have cancer, uh, if you're elderly, let's be honest, right? Um, your protection from vaccine is not as good as, you know, a 25 year old who's getting infected. So you're also, again, like masks with vaccination, you're helping to protect your community um, also. Yep, got it. Um, last related question, then we'll change gears. Sure. Is this, is all this vaccine stuff as effective for Delta and future variants? There's a question specifically about Lambda, which I don't know much about, <laughs> but you know, apparently Lambda undoes the benefit of vaccination or something, or there's-, there's no, you, you have a very sophisticated person asking that question and, and they are spot on, which is again, just like flu vaccine, the, this, the current vaccines were designed against the virus that was circulating in early 2020. They're not designed for the viruses that are going to be circulating in 22, 23. And I tell people I've not gotten my booster because I'm going to wait for the updated virus vaccine that's going to probably come out next year. Right. So I'm pretty healthy. So I didn't see a reason to get my booster. Uh, and I don't like shots. So yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just I'm just going to wait until next year and get whatever updated uh, um, vaccine comes out based on the new variants. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Yep. Nope. Makes sense. Uh, good. One of the things I did over the course of this webinar series, uh, Ali, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I did a survey after the first 25, uh, conversations and I asked everyone who was listening a couple thousand people. I said, listen, what do you like and not like about it? And they said, you know what we really liked? And it might've been because there were people sitting at home locked down. They're like, we really love your guests recommendations for books to read and movies to watch. I was like, okay, what about the great content? They're like, no, no, those are good. We can watch on Netflix. So I have to ask the question, because I, I didn't ask you last time, do you have a book you would recommend uh, that all of us go read or that you really enjoyed? And relatedly, is there a movie or mini series that you would suggest we pay some attention to if we're sitting on the couch at home and needing something to entertain us? So from a public health standpoint, the ghost map is one of my favorites. It tells the story of Jon Snow, 1854, and how, uh, think for yourself, right? Go back to your thoughts. How, yeah. before germ theory, right? 1854, no germ theory, no cholera is associated with water. And just thinking for himself, he's like, why are all these people clustered around the Broad Street pump, right? It's a great story about public health uh, and how public health works. Uh, so I, I like that. Um, in terms of TV, in terms of movies, the best movie, I actually don't watch pandemic movies anymore. They're too close. <laughs> They're just, I've, anything that has to do with virus and contagions and zombie, I don't do any of it. It's just too close. Yep. Um, and it's tragic because um, the best movie ever made uh, about a pandemic is actually the movie, movie Contagion. Yep. Con yeah, Contagion. Contagion. The best yeah, movie yeah. ever made. And what's, um, one of the things in there that I said would never happen happened, right? Which is they they kidnapped one of the main characters for vaccine or something like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what's happening now, right? Yeah. As people try to get hold of hold of vaccine and the misinformation, you know, yeah. that was part of that. So uh, that's a really good movie. However, I just for the first time watched uh, uh, Cowboy Bebop and uh, which is the anime anime series have you seen that 1998 26 episodes watch it you'll love it 
<laughs> All right, good. <laughs> I will put it on the list. It's amazing how that's what people found so interesting about these great guests I bring. I guess when you're locked up at home, you want some some alleviation from that. So it's a it's a nice transition, Ali, to the to a broader topic, which is public health generally speaking. Um, you and I have talked a little bit about what the dynamics are happening, even at UNMC, in terms of enrollment and getting people excited about and students excited about public health, etc. But I want to ask the question before we go into the educational side of public health, that public health is one part of the equation. You indicated the policy dynamics, et cetera. I often have talked about, uh, people used to ask me when the book came out, uh, Vikram, should, what do you think about lockdowns? Should I think for myself and not listen to them? Should I do? I said, wait, well, hold on a sec. There's, there's a balancing act here. But I do think it's appropriate for leaders to understand what may be in the public health interest from a viral perspective and a pandemic perspective may not be in the interest of each individual from a personal health perspective, right? What is the cost of a missed mammogram? I don't know what it is, but it's not zero, right? What is the cost of kids being stuck at home for some time, mental health? I don't know, but it's not zero. And so anxiety, mental health, et cetera. How does stuff like that fit into your thinking? So mental health explicitly, uh, because mental health sort of dances on public health. You get enough people depressed and high anxiety, that's a public health problem now. No, absolutely. Yeah. And mental health is a, is is part of uh, public health. And your point is absolutely spot on, right? So if we laid in bed all day long, we would drop many, not all of our risks, right? The, but we drop many of our risks zero, right? I'm not going to get in a car accident if I stay home all day, right? So... And this is why it's really important that when we develop public policy, that you take the science and you connect it to the politics. Because at the end of the day, as a, as a public health practitioner, I'm not accountable to the public, right? It's the politicians that are accountable to the public. And, and how do you balance that to say what is good policy? And when you balance that, you do get good public health policy, right? Uh, I think uh, where you go, you know what? Banning this completely makes no sense, but you know what? We need to do X, Y, and Z to make it safer, you know, a harm reduction uh, policy. What got us in trouble during this pandemic is completely discounting the science where policy was purely politics and that what gets you in trouble so i'm willing to admit sci science purely po uh, policy is you know would get you in trouble because the, so, you know if you want to go to zero risk you really can't do anything anymore right um, uh, and then politics without science gets you in trouble so you just have to have that balance and we need to figure out how we can go back to re respecting expertise Right. So for some things you don't think for yourself. Right. I don't do my own taxes. I don't fix my own roof. I don't fix my own car. Right. But somehow many people think they can just think for themselves and decide whether vaccines are safe or effective or not. No, that's just not how it works. Right. Uh, and so we just need to go back to recognizing, you know what, when you need your plumbing done, you don't decide to go, well, let me go figure out what a wrench is. Right. You go find a plumber. Sure. Right? That's so we that's need right. to respect expertise. Well, it's interesting because I, I, one thing I do say in the book is keep experts on tap, not on top, which is we need experts. This is not an expert bashing logic. This is people know if 
God forbid someone needs a very specialized brain surgery, don't go to their general internist. That's not the person you want. You want to find the person who knows what they're doing in that domain. Same thing with mechanic, same thing with a plumber, et cetera. With that said, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've developed is a very eclectic following here uh, of a wide variety of people across the country and some internationally, et cetera, that pay attention. And, and one of these, I said, well, you know, I'm going to start getting out there and uh, traveling again. And, and I got something in the mail. I'm going to show it to you and I want to hear see your reaction. They said, look, this was right when the vaccines were coming out. And they sort of said, well, if you're going to start traveling, in addition to the vaccines, you might consider having this. And I don't know if you can see it. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, of course, ivermectin. Uh, that's that's so, great. So it's, uh, well, it says, sort of hint. I'm going to tell you why. So this is a person that said, look, I've been reading a lot that ivermectin can help contain and prevent the uh, infection rate. Oh now, God. what I'm getting at is broad education, information flows, knowledge, and, you know, one can think too much for themselves, right? So, yeah. so how do we get this into, why am I getting a horse medication in the mail with a vial of paste that someone thinks will help me travel more safely. Power of misinformation. Uh, and a lot of that has to do, I'm gonna put blame all over the place. I wanna start with public health people who aren't always good communicators, okay? I always like to look at myself in the mirror first, right? You know, uh, communications that they're, that they're not clear uh, and um, they're not complete. They change too fast without clear reasons on why they're changing. Uh, so uh, public health communications. And then again, the politics of the situation for the lack of accountability for the poor response and people then who in that space, misinformation flows. And I like, you know, we started this conversation before we started recording about you need to listen to the diversity of views out there so you don't find yourself in an echo chamber. And so for me, that means I listen to my local conservative radio station. Uh, and I think for other people, it should mean, you know what, I'm going to listen to voices outside of, you know, Fox News to look and, and then you need to do that blending to say, okay, what makes most sense? And that's to your point about with the experts and not the experts uh, expert on top. I mean, even me, if I needed brain surgery, I'd be Googling, where's the best place to get my brain surgery, right? So that's trying to understand the issues and do best by me and not leaving it to somebody else to decide for me. So yeah, you can do the thinking for yourself, but again, respecting expertise. Yeah, I, I think that point that you just made about, it's one that I've made many, many times in public speeches, et cetera, which is all of us really need to diversify our media diet. Uh, and it doesn't mean you need to agree with everything being said uh, in different forms. If you're, a, again, if you've listened to Fox News, uh, not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying also listen to CNN, please. Uh, also pay attention to MSNBC. And so just absorb and, and, and take in multiple viewpoints. You can form your own. But doing it in these echo chambers where you hear the same thing over and over again, you know, I think it was, I forget who it was who said a lie uh, said a hundred thousand times becomes a truth or something to that effect, right? That people eventually start believing, uh, this as fact. So, you know, diversified media diet. Are there trusted... Can, can, can I just extend yeah. that a little bit? Which yeah, is, um, social media makes it so much easier than ever before. And we know, for example, there's a disinformation dozen of people who drive 
60% of all misinformation on social media. And what there's also political global actors who are in the business of spreading misinformation in America, not because they believe in vaccines or they don't believe in vaccines. And they actually spread information on both sides just because they want to sow discourse within our communities, right? And, um, and the Russians and the Chinese have been, governments have been called out on this again and again. I, yep. Their purpose, they don't care vaccine or no vaccine. They really rather have Americans uh, uh, bifurcated and split. Yeah. So another question that comes out of that easily, and it's one that some others have asked here, which is, uh, where do you go for your information? Is it purely science-oriented uh, sources? Do you go to the CDC? Do you look at some global organizations? How and where do you get the information you trust? So... I go to more than the information I trust. So yes, uh, CDC, WHO, uh, the literature, I, I keep up with that for the science, but I'm very careful to make sure I understand everything else around these issues. So what I'm seeing, you know, in Twitter, you know, these new TMZ news, et cetera, conservative radio. I mean, I try to consume a little bit of all of it. So I have a sense when somebody comes to me and says, Doc, I need to use ivermectin to know where is this coming from and say, you know what, here's some options for you that would really be effective for you to protect your health. Um, and uh, it also has taught me over time that it's not just the message, it's the messenger. Uh, and so I may have the right message, but I'm definitely the wrong messenger for many communities. And I think we should, all of us in public health should recognize that, that we're not always the right messenger. And we just need to find that right messenger for that community. Sure. So let's let's go back to this conversation about public health, public health education, and how we can inspire more, whether it's folks to enter the profession, but think of it the proper way, which is not, hey, I'm going to go prevent the next pandemic, which, of course, if we find one person who does that, that's worth the investment of a lot of people. Uh, but how, talk to me about public health, the future of public health, how you're thinking about it. And then something you and I have talked about, and I'll let you bleed into this if you think it makes sense, um, data, data relating to public health, where it goes, how it gets gathered, whether we have the right systems in place to keep track of, understand not only from a treatment and vaccine and other data perspective, but also do we have the right warning systems in place, which would go off and give us the heads up God forbid we have another big pandemic on our hands. Can I start with data? Because I love data. Sure. So <laughs> one, on. There's a couple of ways to characterize our failed response. One is that from the politicization of public health, but the other one is from a data failure, right? So if you'll notice, we were not at the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't going to CDC to find out how many cases there were in our country, how many people were lab tested. And that should have been a head scratcher for all of us like, wait, the globally recognized national public health agency, CDC, but we need to go to a university website to figure out how many cases there are in the US, right? Uh, and then um, the COVID tracking project, thank gosh for them because they actually gave us accurate data on testing in the US and ethnicity in the US, right? Uh, and so that's, you know, for all of us, we knew how bad data systems were. They're unreliable, they're incomplete, they're siloed, they're incompatible, they're delayed, you know, but that was it. It's like, oh my gosh, we have a global, pan we have a national pandemic and we're depending on John Hopkins University and the, co and the COVID tracking project to tell us what's going on in our country, right? 
that's bad. Okay, I don't. There's no yeah. other way to to, yeah. to, to to characterize that or uh, to to give them a pass on that. So we need to do. We can we can do better. The best example I have for you is NASA, since you like to think outside the box. You know, think about how NASA went from in-house technology to a completely different way of doing business, uh, and how that completely changed the agency. Right, and I think public health needs to do the same. Needs to do the same thing. Now, as far as public, the pandemics are bad. They're political. We need to find solutions for them. But those are not the biggest public health problems right now. Right? I look at forty-two percent of Americans who are obese, and I go yeah, increased yeah. risk of diabetes, heart disease. And I'm like, uh, in twenty years, obesity will cause more cancer than smoking. Like really? No way. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we have existing public health problems that we know we have solutions for, right? For the clinicians who listen to you, they'll know that only a small proportion of people who have diet who have hypertension are actually recognized and adequately treated. And that that just makes no sense, right? Why why can't we get simple things right? So there's there's and health equities within our communities, you know, the the Failure to take account of social determinants of health and making sure we address the health equities in our community. Climate change, right? Uh, the you know the current Glasgow conference um, and the G20 meetings. So there are other significant public health issues that we need to address. And I'm hoping that this pandemic helps people recognize that who are these public health people, why it matters to us, and and how that can help us create healthier communities together. Yeah. Talk to me about the data relating to some of these vaccines where we have to go find it outside. Speaking of data, where, you know, you and I have talked about the Pfizer data, Israel, that kind of stuff. So, oh, yeah. So, is, so why is that do, happening? Why does that do, happen? To do so for the boosters, we asked for data from Pfizer to help us understand when you started to see breakthrough infections after your two doses to need third doses, what age groups, what time. Now, this is despite the fact that in the U.S. we had vaccinated more people than Israel, needless to say, right? 300 million people. So we have the data that says who's been vaccinated and when and with what vaccine. We have the data on who's tested positive and we and whenever they tested positive, the dates. And we have the data on who's hospitalized uh, and how severe the illness is. We just can't put those three pieces together. Just IT? Is it what? What is it? Is this literally just it's, IT system? It's it's, cult, it's culture. It's the culture of sharing, uh, the incompatibility of the data, and the lack of visionary thinking, uh, and sort of the strategic agility to say, okay, how do we put these systems together? It's not. It's just not how our system works, and we don't even use electronic medical record data for surveillance the way we should. Uh, that's the part of this. Hopefully, this new wave of data modernization is to better use. Uh, electronic medical rate, but nope, those three pieces exist. We just can't put them together. Interesting. It's interesting. One of the other things that I often talk about, and I, I did this even before in my study of financial bubbles, as I said, there's oftentimes seemingly irrelevant data, which has huge predictive or other additional value if you were to consider it. And because of these silos, we don't think about them. And the example I'm going to throw at you to hear your reaction is something that some of my peers at Harvard were using. They were tracking COVID in wastewater streams mm -hmm. to see, and they said, you know what, you could see hospitalizations rise, you know, a couple of weeks after or a week after or something like that. Yeah. Is that true? Like, so that kind of data, why are public health professionals not surveilling wastewater streams? 
Uh, so they are. Uh, so there are various places that are looking at wastewater streams, especially for specific neighborhoods where you may not have good surveillance. So it's sort of like, how do you couple the wastewater stream with other surveillance in the community looking at respiratory illness? But people are using, uh, trying to be a little bit more creative. But the point is, how do you put that all together? Yeah, that's right. No, no, no. How do you put all this data together? So um, there's there's seven questions that I have not even gotten to, but the one okay, that- Okay, I'll go through them fast. What do you got? <laughs> Well, so you can see some of them are in the chat here, but before we do that, I want to ask one bigger question, which is, okay. what do you think, Ali, about the risk of another pandemic? How likely is the next- 100%. Big, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Invariably, it'll be a flu virus or another coronavirus. It'll be another, it'll be an influenza virus that we've never seen before, like 1918, it'll be another coronavirus. 100% chance, what we just don't know is- when? when it's going to happen again. And we have the ability to identify them faster if we have better systems in place, which will give us a couple of weeks or months to prepare. Okay. So given that, what can we do now? What, what If I'm writing a letter to my political leaders, what do I say to them that says, listen, this is a big risk. I think this is really important. I, as a citizen, of course, that, you know, maybe they'll dismiss me, but if we get a million people doing it, maybe they'll actually move the needle. Okay, so you need, two, you need two levels of action. You need levels of action within your country. So here in the United States, better, uh, we talked about, without a doubt, better data, data systems, more money, both from the feds and states. The states need to have buy-in for help because that's what the constitution says for state-level people and systems around uh, public health. Uh, yeah. And then we need better federal leadership for somebody who can tie together all these preparedness activities and make all these agencies work together uh, through their silos. So some somebody sub-cabinet level, cabinet level to make that happen. Yeah, around so to connect it all. Right? Sure. And so that's yeah. about rapid that that's about finding it faster and then responding to it faster right that's at the national level uh, we need to repeat that at the international level right because we are a connected global community and we need the chinas of the future to report cases immediately right and we need to have the systems in place to make sure we have a global response immediately to limit limit disease and that's going to require funding again for preparedness related activities but it's going to require difficult political work on what are those sticks and carrots to make it happen which goes back to my comment about you get a tax on you get a tax on international tickets unless you're willing to do this yep yep bioterrorism risk of that that you think coming from could some could a pandemic or some sort of targeted we're seeing and this is a question that came in relating to CRISPR so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to get stuck in the CRISPR stuff but could we use biological delivery mechanisms to really create uh, a, a terrorist type thing but in a plausibly deniable way uh, is, yeah. is the question I'm getting asked here, which is well, so actually it is plausible. It's more plausibly deniable than nuclear weapons, which are a more expensive to put together. But then from the isotope compositions, you can sort of figure out where it came from. So uh, the risk of bioterrorism goes up every day because the technology to do uh, bioengineering increase uh, it gets disseminated more widely and is cheaper 
every day, right? So their risk goes up every day and there's their main people with intent to do bad things who will do bad things with anything they can get their hand on. And we see that with IEDs, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's just a function of whatever they can get their hands on. So the risk goes up as it's easier to engineer biologic weapons. Most of uh, the ones about a global pandemic would be if somebody, you again, I worry more about microbiologists become terrorists than terrorists becoming microbiologists. But you know, you could, you could pretty much synthesize your own smallpox virus now. You can. The data is it's very clear how to do that, right? And so you could synthesize your own smallpox virus and release it. Uh, you wouldn't know who released it. So that would be the, you know, deniable plausibility there. Uh, but it can be done. And then relating to it, this is the last big question I'll ask. There's a lot of questions about China and dynamics of politics, and we can come back to that if we had time, but I don't think we're going to. Uh, climate change and pandemic risk. So, you know, we're seeing permafrost melt in places yeah. like Liberia. You're seeing anthrax emerge off of dead reindeer carcasses. We're starting to see... It, this is a seeming connection that a lot of people fail to make, but like, okay, hold on a sec. Is climate change going to increase the lethality of pathogens that could be in our environment and that one of which could snowball into a real serious health issue? And so this is, I love this one because it's a yes, no answer. Um, and so there's no new diseases that happen because of pandemic. It's just existing diseases that change the distribution that are problematic. So if you go to parts of Africa and you have no water, if you have no water, there's no mosquitoes. Bye-bye. However, if parts of the world get warmer, then mosquitoes and ticks migrate to those areas and you have new risk areas. And that's exactly what we're risk for. We see already see this with tick-borne encephalitis in Europe. We're seeing this in the U.S. with the dissemination of Lyme disease vectors across the U.S. And increasingly, we're seeing a certain mosquito-borne brain viruses migrating further north into Canada. So we're already seeing that happen. I tell people climate change is now. Climate change is, you know, everybody likes to talk about climate changes at the end of the century, at the end of the whenever. And I'm like, no, climate change is now too. Let's not forget the now. So yes. So I'm not a, you, you figured this out right now, right? I, I don't like to scare people, you know, but just being very honest that for some diseases, we'll more likely be infected depending on where we are. And for other diseases, we'll be less likely to be infected on where we are in some, probably more disease. If we sum it up, probably more. All right. So I'm going to let you have the last word and I want it to be positive. Yeah, <laughs> I need it to be positive. I need you to tell us this thing is going to be okay. We're going to all be fine. Uh, you know, or, or whatever positive you can leave us with uh, in the last minute we have here. Like so the, the positive is at least for COVID, uh, please get vaccinated and you can definitely protect yourself and your family and your friends and your community. So there's a positive that we have a strategy to help us get out of this COVID um, into the new, whatever the new normal is. So get out there, get vaccinated, wear your mask indoors where needed and stay healthy. And get vaccinated against flu this year. I'm, I'm worried about flu coming back this year. So make sure you get your flu vaccine. All right, perfect. Well, listen. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I want to thank uh, you, Ali, as well, for your friendship, for your camaraderie, for the conversations we have. I can't wait till we have a dinner coming up soon, hopefully. Uh, and uh, really want to thank you for, for, for your time. And for, for everyone who's taken the time to support and participate in this webinar series, I want to thank you, too. Uh, it was a really nice 40-some-odd 40, 40 conversations over the last 18 months. Began with Dr. Khan, ended with Dr. Khan, 
end it on a positive note. Doesn't mean I won't have further webinar conversations. I just think this this Think for Yourself webinar series is in fact uh, sort of, I wanted to bookend it uh, and I can think of no better person to bookend it with than, than Dr. Khan. So uh, thank you everybody. Uh, I will have the replay available and I'll send it out uh, to the mailing list. And, and, and for you, Dr. Khan, thank you again for not only what you do for our country, but what you do for, uh, for sharing your insights and, and for public health also. So thank you. Thank you, Vikram. A real pleasure. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 